Welcome to Current Affairs. My name is Nathan Robinson. I am the editor-in-chief of Current Affairs magazine. Today, we're going to be talking about hedge funds, inequality, and Wall Street. My guest is Professor Megan Tobias Neely. She is assistant professor in the Department of Organization at the Copenhagen Business School. She is also the author of Hedged Out, Inequality and Insecurity on Wall Street. Professor Neely, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we will start with the very basics. We'll start with what's a hedge fund? Which, which, which you do discuss in the book as a question that at one point you yourself even even did not know. People might not know, so we 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 better we better do it. What's a hedge fund? Well, and this is something so many people have heard of hedge funds. They constantly make headlines, but very few people know what they actually do. And it is, I mean, for the purposes of the book, the gist of what you need to know is that it's a private investment firm. They're usually very small. Uh, they average about 20 employees that pulls large sums of money from wealthy um, investors as well as institutions to invest in the stock market. And what the rhetoric often in the general media is that, you know, the, only the wealthy invest in hedge funds. But the reality is the majority of their investors are actually institutions. So these are things like investment um, asset managers, investment banks, pension funds, government wealth funds, um, university endowments are all invested in hedge funds. So they impact many more of us than we realize in, in different ways. Because you have to have a certain amount of money to invest in a hedge fund. Is that right? Um, but but the institutions that do this are like Harvard has has even been pejoratively called a, a hedge fund with a university attached to it or, so, or, so, or something like that. So so even though they are rich institutions, they are often you know made of lots of lots of people. Yeah. So they, I mean, they um, they, and it depends on the hedge fund and who they take as their investors. But it's often yeah these large institutions. Um, that are very sophisticated investors. And that's the main thing with the Securities and Exchange Commission is that they require that hedge funds um, investors are sophisticated if the hedge fund's at a certain size with the idea that if there's more risk involved, that investors should know what risk they're getting into. Is it a kind of boutique investment bank? Is that like a way to think about it or...? Yeah, that's a great way. And that's actually often what or what they have historically called themselves are kind of boutique oh, investors. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and and the crazy fact that you you cited the book that I had no idea is that a uh, you know you're you're a sociologist uh, I'm in I'm in sociology myself uh, uh, and uh, hedge funds actually invented by a Marxist sociologist yeah yeah this is a something very few people know that he was or at least in the general world or sociology world but yeah a, a sociologist is the initial person who. Uh, kind of came up with these strategies to uh, mitigate risk in the markets. And um, and so we have him to credit for it. Doing our field proud there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, and and the hedge in, in hedge fund is, is, as you just mentioned, is the, is the mitigation of, of risk. That's, that's what that, why that word is, is applied to these funds. Is that right? Or... Yeah. So, and the idea with a hedge is that you, it's a kind of investment um, where you might take stakes in a couple different companies, uh, perhaps in the same field, with the idea that then if one goes down and one does well, you don't lose quite as much. So the idea is it's a, a risk mitigation strategy, um, so that you're you're not just putting all your, um, you know, just going for one company and then if it if it tanks, it doesn't go well. So far, I've I've we've talked about hedge funds kind of in the terms that they might talk about themselves. But I want to follow up the question of what 
is a hedge fund according to the dictionary definition by getting to your own analysis and reframing that question as instead of what is a hedge fund and we say, okay, well, it's a boutique investment bank that deals with these big institutional investors and is focused on mitigating risk. Okay, that's our economics textbook definition. But now we get to the Megan Neely study of hedge funds. And the question I'm going to ask is, what is the way the the way that we should understand or conceptualize what a hedge fund is? Because there's a lot more going on under the surface than that definition le- leads us to believe. Yeah. And so I think what, what I really call attention to in this book is that, and the hence the title of the book, Hedged Out, is that these hedge funds are you know um, financial firms that have so much money and so many resources and they're able to create um, structured organizational structures that effectively sort of wall them off from as much oversight as other financial firms so they can kind of do what they in a, in a sense um, within reason they can call their own terms um, pay themselves what they want um, because there there's less scrutiny um, of what they do and, and you and you point out that they they could be quite quite powerful and even um, you know you you cite the examples of Argentina and, and Puerto Rico and that these 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 giant pools of of wealth that are insulated from democratic accountability can 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 really shape societies and and change government policies. Yeah, and, and that's something I kind of go to in the conclusion is a little bit about how you know they've been tied to doing things like collapsing currencies. Um, this is uh, a classic example is when Soros broke the Bank of England by shorting the British pound. Uh, this has happened in other crises as well, and and um, more recently when COVID hit in March of 2020, hedge funds shorted the stock market when it when it was crashing, knowing that it would happen. Uh, so they are, you know, in, intertwined in our lives in so many ways, both in the stock market as well as in lobbying efforts um, they're involved in and with the revolving door in Washington. Uh, there are a number of pu- public officials who have worked at hedge funds as well as um, in the Oval Office and in other positions. So it's something that should be on all of our radar. Their might is, um, is far and wide in terms of how it influences our worlds. Now, we have talked so far as if hedge funds are essentially just big abstract pools of money, but but one of the central points of the book is that hedge funds are made of people and you know, you're a sociologist, you're interested in the in the social world of these of these places and the people that that inhabit them. And you say that they're obviously they're heavily comprised in particular of extremely wealthy and privileged white men, and that this is actually quite important, and that if we don't look at this and, and take this seriously and, and ask why it happens, then we, we don't quite understand the place of these institutions in our society. Yes, and that's something that when I first thought about studying the industry, one thing that really piqued my interest was in in, um, an industry association study that found that 97% of hedge fund assets are managed by firms run at the partner executive level exclusively by white men. 
And that number to me was just astounding. I mean, I knew from kind of doing background research on the industry, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly when you're looking up hedge funds and details about them, how skewed it is. But that number um, was more than, you know, what I think what most people in the industry would realize. And so what I that really led me to ask the question guiding this book, which is, you know, how is it that a group that controls so much power and wealth money in the U.S. can be controlled by such small hands? And how is that tied to these high incomes that they have? And so what I found is that when you have a group of a group like this, they are able to really control the terms of who they let in and who gains access. And in doing so, they often, you know, think of it as, you know, picking people who they who are, quote unquote, a good fit or remind them of themselves. But they get allow entrance to people who really mimic themselves in terms of how they think, how they look where they come from. And that's part of the part of what makes this industry so insular, but also then allows them to kind of do, create this environment where they don't have to deal with a lot of accountability. If you surround yourself by people like yourself, you're less likely to be challenged or pushed or have uh, um, held accountable for what you do. Yeah. I mean, you point out that they, they tell themselves a, a story, essentially, that their institutions are pure meritocracies essentially like, like as close to meritocracies as, as, as you could get right because they say the only thing that matters here is you know you, profit can you make money for the for the investors we don't care about anything else we don't care uh, who you are and so there is a kind of kind of the the, the idea which uh, Milton Friedman also said things along this, like, you know, the market essentially weeds out discrimination because someone who discriminates won't make as much money as someone who is a meritocrat. So it allows them to conceive of the institution as fair. But 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 you point out, because you've actually, you know, been inside these institutions and you've interviewed people and, you, and you've, you've looked at them closely, that when you actually look at the way they hire, the way they they, they bring people in, the values that you, you they hold you can see that actually there are very very deep deep prejudices there are ways in which uh that that story of meritocracy breaks down under scrutiny mm-hmm. absolutely and i think that's something that is most astounding to them is because they really do think the bottom line is a meritocratic force so they think your number you know if you're an investor your numbers are your numbers is what they told me again and again but then when you probe a little bit and you say, well, what, but do, don't you work on teams? How do you determine who contributes on a team um, to that, you know, ultimately to that return? And then they'd say, oh, you're right. That's that's a little bit harder. That's a little, you know, there's some subject, subjectivity to that. And I think that one thing that's important to, to stress here, too, is that anytime that there's some, um, an environment where somebody notices somebody's like themselves or it feels like a good fit, there's usually always like a, a counterthought about who is then excluded or is deemed to be less of a, not to be a good fit. And those are always, you know, these are often our gut kind of base instinct um, judgments we make about people. And we base them on their status characteristics that we notice. So it's things like when we first look at someone, how do we um, respond to them and think about them? And there's always, uh, you know, stereotypes and bias and that often hold racist or sexist ideas come are always there um, latent in those judgments of a good fit. <laughs> There's also always that counter of whose isn't a good fit that it has those kind of meanings attached to it. And sometimes it's not latent. I mean, sometimes, or, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's overt. I mean, you quote some people in the book. I mean, you, you have accounts here where, you know, male 
hedge fund managers say things like, you know, I oh I don't hire women because uh, they're not interested in finance, or um, because they, you know, because uh, they they will clearly prefer maternity. I mean, these the stereotypes are are, are not just. Uh, you know, not just 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 buried deep within. They're they're pretty near the surface a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I often had the sense that people were withholding the most egregious examples. Uh, sometimes, you know, they they tell me things and it would be kind of coded. Uh, but yeah, a lot of an- t- times where they talk about knowing of hedge fund managers who just wouldn't hire women in principle. Um, one woman described how she couldn't get accounts because of the um, her supervisor or the the chief executive said that. You know the um, the investors that she would have been working with. He thought that they didn't like women and that they didn't like Jewish people, and so they ju- he just didn't want her on the account for that reason. So there were these very blatant and um, examples of of discrimination. But then there were also times when they would say like, "Oh, it's just you know the flavor," you, or "You have to have a thick skin." And any time somebody says that, you assume that there's there's something said that probably. Uh, made someone feel isolated or kind of targeted or harassed um, in that setting. But they did, especially because it's such a reputation-based industry, people often withheld those more overt examples uh, because they felt uncomfortable sharing. Yeah. So they say, you know, oh, well, it's a, it's all about the bottom line. Everything is just this, 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 this one question, which is the making of money. But then actually, one of the funny things, of course, is that that you cite, and this is true. I I, I went to uh, law school, and a lot of my colleagues did interviews with the big Wall Street law firms, and the same same piece of the culture is present there, where everyone goes there to make money. But if you say that in the interviews that you want to make money, you're instantly disqualified because uh, it's 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 a, it's a landmine that you're not supposed to step on it. You're supposed to know that you you're not supposed to step on it. But that's kind of weird when you think about it, right? Because I mean, if they if they do just care about the bottom line, then someone should be able to in the interview go look. Uh, I'll, the only thing I'm going to tell you is I will make you a ton of money because I am an extremely greedy person and I. Um, intensely focused on the bottom line because I want to make money and I want to make you money. Um, but that that but there's a really really complex kind of culture. And you say this idea of cultural fit, and they are looking for they're actually looking for people who who plug into and who they like and who they get get along with and uh, who who share their kind of sensibilities and their views of the world and uh, who make them comfortable. Yeah, and I think I think this gets at the there's this class respectability to it uh, that if you say you just want money, that's not you know that doesn't align with the kind of upper class elitist mentality that's dominant in the industry. It should be you should be motivated by something else, not just money. Uh, there were you know there were a couple people I interviewed who did who were more kind of senior and they you know when I asked like you know what what do you enjoy most about what you do and they said yeah, the money, it's great, you know, and, and they then tied it to wanting to make an impact and, you know, what they, how they, they, um, their kind of more um, moral outlook on the world, but they still, they were of the few who would say just flat out, yes, that's why most people would say, sure, I have to acknowledge the money is important, but really I love the investments is what they'd always say or, um, and I didn't, you know, and I didn't um, question that. They did describe how often investing has this kind of like addictive feature to it, especially as you take on more and more money. Um, so one man I interviewed, I call Wayne, and I use pseudonyms for them. 
which is just what we do to it in, as sociologists to ensure um, privacy and anonymity for the people that we interview. Uh, but they, so Wayne would describe, his eyes lit up as he described the thrill of making investments on the scale. And he decided, described how, you know, the first time he did a, um, you know, a million dollar trade and then a bill, and the first time he got to a billion dollar trade and then a, um, from there and how it was, you know, he just got this thrill of seeing his models play out in real time and how it was the best thrill, you know, he could imagine. It was better than sex is what he said. Um, and so there is there is a piece of it um, that I think is, t I mean, these numbers are tied to the money. So you can't um, fully separate it from that. But it, it is a, a part of the appeal and allure of the industry and their work. As you talk to these people and you, you, you know, try to understand their their deepest motivations for for joining this industry you know obviously you can't see inside of people's souls but did you uh, did you come to any conclusions about what, why you think people do you know so strongly desire to, to be in these institutions what 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 it does give them what kind of 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 meaning what what kind of story they get to tell themselves that makes their life worthwhile yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that came up again and again for me um, was that there's this heightened perception of insecurity in the stock market that motivates them. Um, so whether they're, I mean, this is kind of explains once they're in why they keep working and why they, they want to um, excel and make ever more money. But they often describe how like there's a certain amount of money they want to work towards um, before they would retire and do something else. And they'd always cite these things like one wanted to work for the World Bank as an economist. Um, another is thought teaching would be a more altruistic uh, thing to do. But they they always said, you know, it's they there was some amount of money that when they made, it'd be a big enough safety net where they could just retire and do what either they really wanted to do or some or many of them said they would actually just continue to invest. But they wanted that status of being able to retire but not and having and getting to work just for the fun of it, not because you actually need money. And I think this really stems from this perception of insecurity that there's and this is something that um, the sociologist Marianne Cooper has found in the Silicon Valley as well, that even uh, wealthy, well off people in, in um, professional jobs have this kind of perception that we live in an insecure environment. And so part of their overwork and their addiction to work and their desire to amass riches is a response to that, um, those perceptions, whether they're real or not. Well, and they're certainly given the, uh, given science that it could all disappear overnight. I mean, you, you speak to someone in the book who's, you know, constantly in the fear of having the one down year where they lose a billion dollars and, you know, then they think, oh, well, would I have to kill myself? In fact, some, someone in the book, their partner even did commit suicide after a big financial catastrophe obviously you you saw the industry in the uh right in the 2008-2009 financial crisis in which a, a ton of people lost their jobs and this kind of this there is some real instability to capitalism uh, that makes everyone in america no matter what their status is feel as if everything that they have could disappear overnight yeah, and I mean, and that's part of hedge funds making. Uh, you know, there's been research that shows that we're having more frequent financial crises, and it's in part because of how financial capitalism has become so risky and um, unpredictable on such a big scale. Uh, 
uh, and hedge funds contribute to that. So it's kind of an interesting piece that they're both a response to it and uh, helping to create it, create this instability. When I wanted to mention the the um, the investment partner who you brought up who uh, committed suicide after after um, the hedge fund went under, I think one thing that's important with that case too is that it was. Um, he what what his uh, the woman who I interviewed what she said about him was that his whole identity was so tied up in the fund, um, in part because his friends and his family were invested in it, and so he really felt this personal um, responsibility for having lost their money. Uh, and he and she described how you know it's both this sense of the your how you've um, you know put people who you care about at risk if you lose their money, but then also this sense of having an identity in tied up in being a hedge fund manager. And, and I really think it captured this kind of um, like, what is at stake from both being so passionate about your work, as well as the kind of um, the fragility of masculinity tied up in this kind of work. And so it's for him, it was, um, you know, it was, or at least her interpretation of why he did this was because it was too much to to face um, after such a failure in front of all of you know the people his peers and the people he cared about. Men tend to be very uh, afraid of being uh, humiliated and 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 desperate to 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 avoid it. Do the people you you talk to do they do, do they tend to give arguments that the work of hedge funds does good in the world and is useful. You have a couple of quotes from people who came from academia, people who came from physics and things, who seemed kind of disappointed that they ended up in finance. They realized that they'd be very good at it because they're physicists, they're very, very good with math. But you know, you and you mentioned earlier people fantasizing about getting out and, and and going and teaching or doing the real thing that they that they want to do. Do they do they have a, a sense that hedge funds are you know, helping helping the grease the wheels of the market and and making sure it all runs uh, properly, or do they say you know there's this argument that hedge funds essentially are just you know a big big casino uh, or or you know parasite on the on the real economy of, of things where do they fall yeah so they i mean i think mo- like most people they find meaning in their work in ver- and have various ways of rationalizing it so i always ask a question of like how does your work you know impact the world or what are the the kind of consequences the like benefits to society or the consequences to it and many of them cited the fact that um you know, there were a few kind of answers that you would like you you referenced that you would think that they thought that they made markets more efficient um, so that by their investing, they helped create jobs and opportunities for people. And so they saw that like the investments they did as, in the markets as the avenue from which to make an impact on the world. But others really stressed the fact that their investors were institutional investors. So, you know, they would say, like, because the pension fund work, you know, because of the investments I do, the pension fund worker can retire. Um, you know, the university can grow their endowment, all of these things. Um, and that's something they took a lot of pride in and really, um, you know, that really mattered to them and was something they cited as about what motivated their work. But what I found was interesting is that they actually called some of that, those ideas out themselves. So one woman, when I was interviewing her, she said this, she was like, well, we do, you know, we invest money for institutions and we're sitting in this glass walled conference room by the entrance to the hedge fund lobby. 
And she gets quiet and she like peers out the wa uh, glass walls to the lobby and she said, I think, I just think the fees are too high. <laughs> And the, and, the, um, and I said, or she said, but don't say that around here. So, and another um, person I interviewed, you know, cited the fact that basically what happens is that, you know, you have all these um, kind of layers of fees that are charged in financial services, and it makes it less likely that the people who are, you know, that money represents, so the pension fund worker or the whoever it is, um, that they are less likely to actually make the money that they're supposed to. Um, so many of them kind of questioned these fees involved uh, and wondered if there was a better way to do it, to make sure that the people they're working for are actually well served by their work. I, I think it's rather sad uh, when you describe uh, the word neoliberalism is, uh, is, is, is used quite a lot, but I, I feel when you cited the example of the person who, I think they worked at NASA or something and the budget cuts. And so I had to go work on Wall Street. I mean, that seems a real case of something in the real economy, the the actual world of, of designing and producing things and stuff and doing things that we might find socially worthwhile, like going to space and exploring and building knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that, that person's life, you know, gets, gets, we shift them over from doing those things that we might find socially valuable to, you know, managing, managing the money of, yeah, maybe it's a pension fund, but maybe it's just a really rich person or it's a really rich university like Harvard where you go, well, uh, I guess it's good that Harvard has more, you made another billion dollars for, uh, for Harvard. But even then some of these, these rich institutions are just reproducers of the small elite cast of, of, of opportunity orders. So it's, you know, it's, it's not clear that that's justice, but, uh, but yeah, this, this moving of some of these incredibly brilliant and intelligent people into this world of just, I think you cite um, Marx at one point where Marx is talking about money using commodities to make money. And now it's just money using money to, to, to make money, the abstract world of finance. Yeah. And that was something that came up with one, uh, one man who I, uh, met had a phd in artificial intelligence that from about 25 years ago and he just kind of had a funny sense of humor and he said it's just a complete waste you know at the time i grad he said i graduated and i didn't know what to do with it and so i went to finance and and, and i heard that again and often it was kind of a joke you know like oh we could be doing so much better more um another and this is something that i should mention too is that i came upon so many people who had came from law backgrounds or PhD backgrounds into hedge funds. And it's a very common pathway into the industry. It's, um, you know, there's a, a lot of people who follow the kind of traditional investment banking um, MBA path, but there are also a lot of people from all kinds of other fields. And this is partly because they're, you know, they think of themselves as the kind of contrarian or anti-establishment sector of, of finance that they think differently and they want to uh, you know, fill their firms with people who think a little bit differently about their investments. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how that comes about. Um, and it's mostly people who have related degrees that uh, lend themselves to understanding the, the kind of investment models, or some people would be specialized, like in a particular area they invested in, um, or whatnot. But they, yeah, they definitely uh, kind of called attention to that. And I think it was partly that they were playing on the, some of the news coverage of the industry. I mean, I think they're, a lot of people just approached it ultimately as a job um, and thought of it that way, especially those who were more in the, you know, who weren't um, at the hedge fund management executive level, but more 
doing the the kind of everyday work. Um, that this is more of how they made sense of it. But those those who really wanted to make it big and make it into that kind of upper echelon of hedge funds, they often explained that it was because they they wanted to make enough money to make an impact with philanthropy. Um, so that was another common avenue that they cited for why they why they did what they did. When we talk about the stories people tell themselves about the institutions they inhabit and then what happens when you actually examine whether those stories correspond to reality, one of the points that you make in the book is that a common story among people who are in the top level at hedge funds is that these are they call flat institutions that they're non-hierarchical. This goes to this this idea uh, that you know the bottom line is what matters, and therefore we don't have hierarchies or bureaucracies because these things would um, get in the way of the efficient production of returns for investors. But when you actually look closely at the institution, you know you see these very very serious uh, inequalities actually even within the hedge fund in terms of the jobs that uh, that that women do the jobs that people of color do in terms of the front of the office back of the office stuff there, there's a, there's actually quite a lot of sort of buried uh, hierarchy and division absolutely and that's something that they always you know I would hear again and again especially from people who started hedge funds is they would describe how they you know didn't want they wanted to get away from the pyramidal structures of the investment banks which they thought were so you know rigid um, and stunted in terms of their ability to innovate and felt like it was oppressive. One man even said, described himself as prostituting himself at a, that was the, his term, um, at an investment bank, which, you know, is pretty strong language for what is a very cushy job. I mean, it's a, a well-paying um, job. But so their goal was to create firms that um, where they thought that everybody was equal or on an even playing field. And often they would say like, oh yeah, you know, my door is always open. Anybody can come in and talk with me or challenge an idea. But that's, you know, it's one thing when you're in the vantage of the leader and it's another when, um, you know, you're just one of the employees of that firm and whether you actually feel comfortable speaking up or or kind of um, acting as though you're an equal um, on an even playing field. And the reality is, I mean, the, the organization of their work isn't equal and really reinforces that power of that chief executive in many ways. I don't know if you've ever uh, picked up the book Principles by Ray Dalio, <laughs> the head of uh, uh, Bridgewater, the, what, is it the largest hedge fund in the world? But uh, I, I read it and I read a review of it. And what was funny to me is this, the, you know, he, he really emphasized a lot of stuff. You talk about this culture of, openness i mean he he's got and he's really radical with it where he says everyone has to criticize everyone to the point where everyone's constantly like keeping track of each other's flaws and uh and they they record their phone conversations and then they play them back to you and criticize your your calls i mean it's it's really absurd but one of one of the things that 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 struck me as as strange is that he was you know sort of in denial of his own position as the kind of king in the in the organization, constantly emphasizing, no, we have this, you know, it's very, very important that we have this culture where people can criticize me. And it's like, yeah, but but do they? <laughs> right? Or or is it that actually everyone follows all these very, very minute rules that you've laid down for them, even though there's not that much empirical evidence that these rules make 
too much sense. And it really does seem like this incredible story. But of course, you know, this is this is true of actual kings, where they all tell. I think you know, King James wrote wrote a wrote a pamphlet about why you know why it was you know why it was important to be the king and why he was why he was justified. Right? I mean, you know, if you um, if you're in a position if you're in a position of high status, you have to find a way to create a story about why your status is 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 just and you're not just handing out orders to uh, people yeah when i think one thing that i find kind of interesting too about him is i've heard him cite um i now forget the exact statistic but how much turnover they have and it is really high and he just says you know some people are into the culture and some people aren't and you wonder well, who <laughs> who is into that culture, um, and what you know? What are their characteristics? It's likely that they're very sim- You know, there's probably a narrow mold that can conform and thrive, in it, um, or even get into it. Um, so I wonder who those those people who who leave are. And this is in my research. One thing that came up was, um, you know, an example of one woman who's um, she's black and she is from a more, uh, middle-class working class background. She's an immigrant. And she described how we met, um, about six times over the course of a year. And at first she really liked the hedge fund she worked at. Um, she, you know, she said it was very collegial. It was better than some of the other hedge funds she'd worked at before. And she then over the course of the year, suddenly things started going, um, pretty negatively with some of her colleagues and she real and it happened after she realized that her peer was making um, way more than she was, despite them being on the same level. And so she approached their supervisor, and these were both white women, um, and she asked for a raise. And she said, she described how she, you know, gave her kind of market justification, market value, which she called her market value. This is something they use again and again as this, this notion that you have an individual market value that you need to advocate for in your pay. And she said, I should get made paid market at markets XYZ. Um, and then basically she was just completely, um, shut down and she said that it felt like, you know, it was, the response was kind of like, know your role, put that she was put in her place. Um, and she said, you know, before that things had always gone well. And this is what she had described to me when we previously met is that, you know, her supervisor really liked her. Um, and then what happened is she told me that human resources came to talk with her. And I was kind of surprised because I always ask about human resources, but very few hedge funds have them. And I don't know if you know, if you've watched the show Billions, there's the um, character of Wendy, the um, psychologist at the hedge fund. And that actually came up off a fair amount of times where hedge funds would hire outside psychologists to come in and they called them the corporate shrink to mediate disputes, but they wouldn't necessarily have their, they didn't usually didn't have the infrastructure to have their own HR. And so it turned out that the uh, that the who she was calling HR was actually the chief investment officer at the hedge fund. So this is the head, you know, it's the equivalent of Ray Dalio in that firm um, who calls the shots. And he wanted to understand what happened, specifically asked if she was going to press charges. And she said it was just very uncomfortable and tensions kind of kept escalating until she quit. And so I think she captures really well that how, you know, they say over and over again that you can negotiate your money, you should know your worth. Uh, if you're underpaid, you should call that out because it shows that you don't know what you're worth. And then when she did it, it didn't work in the same way and she got pushed back. Um, and so I think that and it shows how this kind of um, this level playing field that they described doesn't really hold up in practice. They can tell themselves. I mean, uh, this is this is an interesting thing uh, to me about about Dalio is because the firm is so incredibly successful. He's able to tell himself that 
it's successful because of the set of principles that he carries out and one of the principles is like kindness is a as a weakness so, you know you what you you have to evaluate people what he says accurately not kindly and he he you know talks about the importance of pain and he says you have to be i think a quote of his is uh, shoot the people you love which is just you know to me uh you know completely unbearable but uh but he you know there's this idea that unless you're unless you're ruthless and horrible um you know you won't you won't make money and they make a lot of money which proves that this is uh true um um I've read an analysis from uh, Matt Levine of, of Bloomberg, who says maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, because actually maybe their their trading algorithm is just is just really good, and then the culture is just sort of uh, the, the culture has has no effect either way. But you can convince yourself that the culture is positive. But one of the, but the the point is that um, I I think there there are ways that these that the stereotypes can end up and the prejudices and people and the ideology can end up being you know rationalized by the wealth that is accumulated but what you sort of note is that actually the the accumulation of wealth is kind of better understood as a small elite group of people uh, finding ways to gatekeep there are there are loopholes there is a legal regulatory structure in which this occurs and there's a small group of people who have you know a network of of connections and have found ways to get rich and stay rich and keep others out when i think what you said too about uh what his writing being sort of like a king justifying his rule also gets at this and how social inequality so like things like gender race and um, social class inequality are part of that system that keeps people some people out and then allows them to hedge others in in there and kind of maintain the system of rule but uh, so one thing that came up in my research that i was really fascinated by early on was that they kept describing hedge funds as like tribes or fraternities. And they would call the hedge fund manager kings or chiefs or chieftains. And, and they also kept talking about how trust and loyalty is so important. And the more, as they were describing, because with hedge funds, you don't learn how to run a hedge fund in school. It's just not something that's taught. You learn on the job. And so it's all very based on this like apprenticeship model of education. And it, this fits really well with German theorist uh, Max Weber's theory of patrimonialism, which is this idea that it's kind of it refers to a system of authority that's based on trust and loyalty that kind of bind people together in a familial or just family-like tradition. Uh, and I could, and but what he predicted is that patrimonialism would disappear uh, with as uh, countries developed. You wouldn't see it, and so I kept asking myself, well, why do we see in this kind of industry that's at the heart of finance capitalism, late stage finance capitalism, and, ca and captures it so well, we see these same sort of patrimonial processes. Um, and it, it, it turned up again and again, you know, I had uh, one person I interviewed who I called Jay, he described how the industry, he actually used the term patrilineal. And he said, one teacher generation teaches the next generation teaches the next. Um, and he, you know, he said, you can't quantify it, it just, you just kind of feel it, it's organic. And it's through that system of sort of these um, these family-like ties and social bonds that then you end up with somebody who has authority akin to a king <laughs> that is uh, so outsized and so sort of um, uh, hierarchical in that sense because everybody is 
is so appreciative for that person of for bringing for hiring them, grooming them, if they fit in and if they're kind of a, a exemplary employee. Uh, that they're there it's uh makes it all the harder to rock the boat and call that call the things into question that if you disagree with them or think it's the wrong way to do business yeah and if if a lot of the training is on the job as to how to actually make the the money in the firm but they decide who gets to come in and and learn the the secrets of the trade based on this cultural fit then you do have this as you point out this kind of self-reproducing class of this overwhelming percentage of white men from uh, ivy league schools um i, I one of the fascinating little moments in, in in your book is uh someone who who almost takes advantage of the uh the, the prejudices of of white men which i think is is kind of amusing what, what the phrase i think is perception arbitrage which is that if uh and and in this context there's something like uh you know if if westerners are kind of delusional about non-western countries and think they're less stable than they actually are right you could you could almost make money off of the uh the difference between what people's prejudices are and and what reality is, and it almost, it almost made me think that a, a, a very savvy person could could, uh, could perhaps, if they had access to, to capital, could take advantage of the fact that so many uh, people on on Wall Street are uh, uh, white men with the with the the blinkered view of reality that comes with for, with, uh, with their uh, class background. I just, I just found that rather amusing, and maybe is why a Marxist sociologist could make some money on Wall Street. Well, this is something. Um, there's a sociologist named Kimberly Huang whose research on Vietnamese investments kind of finds this as well. That there's, there's um, these moments when investors can, um, in other countries and settings, can actually sort of capitalize on the um, the the ignorance of the of Western investors who have uh, stereotypes about what, how business is done or mm. how what the investment is involved. Well, and and for as much as the the hedge funds say think that they're doing really well and maximizing returns for investments, I mean, you you do cite examples of what seem to me like economically stupid decisions, like the 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 woman who has like a degree in geology and. They put her in retail yeah. investing because they saw women, women, women love shopping, right? And then they put, you know, men who have no background in geology in charge of the the stuff to do with with minerals. Um, I mean, I mean that seems to me just a clear example of like like a, a something that contradicts the the theory that uh, markets are, are going to run efficiently and get get rid of, of discrimination because you have uh, you know probably sacrificing good investing by taking the person with the expertise in the subject and making sure they're not your person working on the subject mm-hmm. well another good example of this was that how um, hedge fund managers would often recruit women, through their personal networks to work in client services. And so these it, this came up several times where women who worked in trading or in asset management in different capacities, um, not on the client side, but then because they were meeting them in social settings. So they describe how like, you know, I was at dinner um, at a friend's house and there were a number of couples there and my friend's husband rents a hedge fund and he said, well, you're good with people. So why don't you come and be on the client services side? 
And so it's another example of these women had lengthy experiences in, um, in other areas of finance, but then were recruited to do a job that they hadn't done before because, you know, they met at a social gathering where their social skills are on display. And this is a very, you know, it reflects the fact that they are dealing with upper-class clientele. So they might want to have somebody who can kind of navigate those social settings, um, or, you know, uh, being um, doing fundraising for these kind of investments, but it is also like you said, it's just you're missing. It, it doesn't point to an efficient uh, labor market by any means. You know, uh, just to conclude here, sometimes when the fact of the gender, race, and class composition of institutions like this are pointed out. The response is, well, we don't have a, a good enough pipeline. We need a, a, a better pipeline to be, make sure that the opportunities are, are more widely available. But um, in, in your conclusion, you say that it, it's, a, it's a bit more than just like we need a slightly wider uh, pipeline. Uh, the, the, the kind of the nature of these institutions is that they are a way for a sm- small elite group to hoard. Well, I don't, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Perhaps, perhaps you could say how, how you uh, how you conceive of it. What is often attributed as the pipeline problem is really that there are two kind of separate pipelines at work. So one of them is one for people who are not, you know, do not have the cultural and social capital to get into this industry. Um, And it sets up all kinds of obstacles for them to get ahead. And then the other one is for those who fit the mold of hedge fund, this kind of ideal image of this hedge fund manager, which is this elite white man. And it really fast tracks them to the top and gives them all the grooming, the support, um, it removes other obstacles. And then, and even, and then if they're successful, uh, if they have this um, a mentor who's another hedge fund manager, he might even invest in them so they can start their own firm. And so it looks like their own uh, personal genius or brilliance, as they often described uh, these hedge fund kind of uh, superstars, is really the product of all kinds of factors working for them to kind of ease that advancement and their way into the industry to begin with, as well as up into the top and upper echelons within it. This, this might be a weird question. Just to end here, uh, are they defensible institutions, or are they are they socially valuable, or are they uh, uh, toxic? I mean, was the invention of the hedge fund a uh, a serious mistake? Can they be reformed, or were, are they are they always going to be these little islands in which a uh, a, a small group of people wield uh, an a, an unfair amount of, of power and uh, affect democracy ultimately in um, in negative ways. I would say that looking at how they've developed and what and the um, how kind of institutionalized they've become in terms of creating um, both creating and being built on systems of inequality, I think it's really hard to imagine them transforming in a radical way where they they don't contribute to inequality. Um, but it's that's also you know as a uh, as a sociologist that's not really. Thinking about how to reform them wasn't the focus of the study, but more of understanding like why they've come to be and why they persist and why they're so hard, so durable and so hard to change um, that they've erected kind of all these boundaries, both within the firm, but then also the legal boundaries, the taxation, all of that um, regulatory uh, that makes them so hard to to um, penetrate and dismantle.
Well, your, your book really takes readers inside the black box of a, an institution that I think many of us don't understand the workings of and does a service in that respect. And so um, the book is Hedged Out, Inequality and Insecurity on Wall Street by Megan Tobias Neely, available from the University of California Press. Professor Neely, thank you so much for joining me today on Current Affairs. Thank you so much for having me. The Current Affairs Podcast is a product of Current Affairs Magazine. If you are not subscribed to Current Affairs Magazine, visit currentaffairs.org slash subscribe today and get our glorious print edition. The Current Affairs Podcast is released regularly every week on patreon.com slash currentaffairs. Thanks for listening.